0: Good morning. Good morning nice to see you all this morning let's open in prayer our Heavenly Father we thank you for making us a community of God a family that can get together can share can grow in our faith in you Lord and Lord we hope that we can reach out to others and also share with them the love that you have shown us Lord we pray these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship our Lord.
1: Good morning. Bonnie's on a much-needed vacation, so I get to read. Um, today's uh, Today's devotional is called Determined Disciples. If you abide in my word... You are my disciples indeed. John 8:31. A disciple uh, in Jesus' time was someone who followed a teacher or a philosopher. A disciple was both a learner and a follower, believing the teacher's message and then putting it into practice in their own lives. Jesus gave the word disciple an added meaning, however. His disciples also were to be to go out and to carry his message to tell others about him, a disciple of Jesus therefore is someone who has a committed, uh, who has committed his or her life to Jesus and seeks each day to tell others to learn and follow after him, to share him. Does this describe you? No, the first disciples weren't perfect, and neither are we. Like them, we need to learn more, to follow more, to share more. But all of us who, who belong to Christ are called to be disciples. Unlike the original disciples, we can't physically spend time with Jesus, but we can learn of him by reading his word. We can follow him by obeying his word. And we can share him with the world by des- that desperately needs to be saved. And my goodness... The world is desperate to hear his word and see his word today. Our hope for today, what have you done today to learn more about God? Are you following him more today than yesterday? What are you doing to share him with others? The answers will reveal your devotion as a disciple.
2: Join us. Let it rise.
3: scripture today comes from Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. One day Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name and I look favorable upon you. If it is true, that you would look favorable on me. Let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses. I will give you a rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorable on me, on me, and on your people if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people in me apart from all other people on the earth. The Lord replied to Moses. I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorable on you, and I know you by name. Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you, for I will show you mercy To anyone I look directly at my face, and for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, Look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen now we're going to sing tell me the old old story
0: from that's first Thessalonians
2: hallelujah
0: (laughs) (laughs) let's see if i if i say first Thessalonians again oh it doesn't go okay (laughs) chapter one verses one through ten this letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica to who you belong, to you who belong to God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. We always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have, you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be His own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were there with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaea. Now and now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For where we go, we find people telling us about the faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you are, you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors terrors of, of the coming judgment. We have a responsive reading. Or I made it responsive. It looks like it's not responsive, but it is now. (laughs) Lord of the crystal blue sky, bless us with clarity of vision. Lord of the lengthening evening, lighten our burdens. Lord of the biting freeze, sharpen our response to your spirit. Lord of the falling leaf, lift our hearts forward. In our autumn, may we seek your spring. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know all belongs to you. And it's amazing the the variations that you have created in this world. There are so many different things that we know all come from your hand. Lord, and we know that they can all be used for good. We don't always understand, but we know that you are in control. So, Lord, but Lord, you call for us. You entrust these some, many things to us. But you call to, for us to give back, to help others, to reach out and show that love that you have showed us. So, Lord, may, any, may the gifts we give always be used to show the light that is your Son. This we ask in his name.
4: Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us this morning. Father, we do. Uh, we come before you as your people. And um, Lord, you've given us your word to um, comfort us, sometimes to reprove us, uh, but always to encourage us and lift us up and build us. And we commit our way into your hands. I pray that you'll speak to each one of us, you'll speak through me to each person here that we might hear something you're saying to us, a word of encouragement, a word of rebuke, a word of building and, and strengthening us in the spirit. Uh, and we thank you that you are a God who, uh, who loves us, who has called us according to your purpose. And so we commit our way into your hands this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Our text today um, is, we've, we've actually moved on a whole verse. So we're rolling right along here. <laughs> we're on verse thirteen, uh, Colossians three thirteen. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You know I'm I'm, I'm trying to purposely slow down right in this section because often we skip over these character qualities and um, and so we don't you know we don't really take the time to say, okay, so what does that mean t- to my life? How am I supposed to live that out? And the Bible is a book about relationships, our relationship with our God and our relationships with each other. And certainly the most important of that is our, is our relationship with God. But equally, you know, <clears throat> second to that um, is our relationships with each other. And our relationships with each other are, are really important in God's eyes um, because he doesn't just want us to get along with each other. He wants us to build each other and, and, and help each other strengthen, strengthen each other in the faith and become stronger, all of us, together. And, and many of his words are for us as a, as a congregation, as a body of Christ. We're in this together, and we're learning how to live with each other more effectively. All right? Um, and it isn't always easy. Um, God doesn't talk back to us as much as as, as people do, and so you know we we uh, you know sometimes we we uh, we think it's we think it's easier relationship with God than with each other. But one of these areas that I think we need to look at is the word, uh, and I, I'd call it tolerance or forbearance. Um, It's this this phrase in Colossians 3.13, bear with each other. And we are called as believers to bear with each other. And the word in the Greek is anecho, which means exercising self-restraint and tolerance, endure patiently, put up with, bear with. Webster's Dictionary defines forbear as to be patient or self-controlled when subject to annoyance or provocation. That's why I say it. Sometimes we think it's easier with a relationship with God than with each other. The idea is that we're we're to hold ourselves back from, we're to abandon, refrain, control ourselves when provoked. To be patient, in other words, with each other. Uh, Ephesians 4.2 says the same thing with the same words, but then adds a phrase to it. Uh, Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Okay, so this is not just just putting up with each other, but it's putting up with, with each other in love. Love includes tolerance toward other people, and even when we want to react against or avoid them. Love looks to their benefit, not just to our own preference or comfort. John Stott said, forbearing one another speaks of that mutual tolerance without which no group of human beings can live together in peace. And we are called to live together in peace. Uh, so that God can change us. We are to bear with the personality, faults, quirks, and differences of each other. Um, Our humility, gentleness, and patience mean that we do not live to please ourselves, but we live for other people. We are called to to live for each other. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. And, You know, in in our dealings with other people, we are constantly called upon. We have to overlook offenses and things, you know, just personality quirks and stuff from each other. And that's especially in marriage Uh, and close relationships. The closer we are with someone, you know, both in terms of friendship but also in terms of marriage, the more difficult it is sometimes to overlook those offenses. But Tolerance doesn't mean that we ignore the sins of each other. All right, so we have to to keep this in perspective. Sometimes we are called to rebuke, call out, uh, help somebody overcome those sins in their lives. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Matthew 18, 15 says, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. So so there are times when we are called upon as Christians to, um, to call out sin in other people. And the reason that we are to be tolerant is that God is tolerant with us, isn't he? I mean, none of us would be here today. None of us would be saved, none of us would have a relationship with God if God didn't overlook the whole bunch of stuff. Now, I'm not saying that he overlooks our sin in that sense, but he forgives us our sin. We take our sin to him. He forgives us of our sins, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So God has had to bear with. I mean, you, know, you, you might think of it this way. Up until that time when we ask for forgiveness and we have that relationship with God, God had to overlook a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, you know, I mean, you know I, at least in my life. Now, maybe you, uh, maybe you came out of the womb perfect, but I didn't. <laughs> and, and so there's all that stuff, and God had to just, you know, put that under the blood. It's under the blood. We, God remembers it no more. But God sees the best in us, looks at us not as we are, but as he knows we can be. That's the beauty of being a Christian is that we have a God. We know that God is a God who doesn't just look at our, our quirks and the things that we bring, you know, to <clears throat> to the foot of the cross, but he looks at us and he sees the best in us. He sees the potential in us. Uh, you know, when in Jesus and with his 12 disciples, and he constantly looked to the best in them and in order to bring out the best in them. He sees beauty in us when we don't even see it in ourselves. Psalm 103, verse 8 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us, according to our iniquities. And yet sometimes in our relationships with other people, we treat others as, as, their, as we think their sins deserve and we repay according to their iniquities. God doesn't do that. For as high as the heavens are above the, great, uh, the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. There's a beautiful story in Scripture that, to me, uh, illustrates this whole concept of forbearance. And it's Acts 15. And it's Paul and Barnabas, and if you remember, on the first missionary journey, uh, Barnabas was the one who brought Paul from Tarsus down to Antioch. And and Paul and Barnabas, you know, blessed and, and built up that little church in Antioch. But then it came time, and God, it was time to go out, and God has spoken to them. It's time to go out and spread the word uh, in the Gentile word at that world at that time. And so uh, Paul and Barnabas <coughs> went out on that first missionary journey. And on that journey, Barnabas brought his nephew John Paul. And John Mark, I'm sorry, John Mark. And, And John Mark left them. And so Paul did not like that. So sometime later it says, and and that's the context for Acts 15, sometime later Paul said to Barnabas, okay, so they're still together, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So they're going to go back on the second missionary journey and retrace, actually in the opposite direction, retrace their steps and... um, and encouraged the brothers. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia, that's right on the, uh, on the coast, which today Turkey, and did not continue with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So, so, you know, strong disagreement over this nephew and whether they should take him with him. And so they actually parted company. But then it's very interesting. In Colossians 4.10, it says this, My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greeting, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. So sometime in this, John Mark then uh, became very close to Paul. You know he had rejected Paul had rejected him before but he had learned how to forbear with John Mark, how to overlook those things and John Mark actually becomes a blessing to him. 2 Timothy 4:11. Only Luke is with me Paul says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Isn't that incredible? So, you know, the very one that that caused this sharp disagreement becomes then the one who is helpful for Paul in his ministry. Now, the word tolerance, you just hear it all the time now, don't you? In In the media and, you know, on the television and so on. And it's one of the chief character qualities that you hear about all the time, and it kind of trumps every other character quality, is this, this uh, idea of tolerance. And D.A. Carson wrote uh, a little book that I would highly recommend. It's called The Intolerance of Tolerance. Okay, good, good title, nice title. And, and his, the theme of it is that some people in our culture have redefined the word tolerance. And let me explain that to you. He says, under the older view of tolerance, all right, that's the view, the biblical view, the the older view, a person might be judged tolerant if while holding strong views, he or she insisted that others had the right to dissent from those views and argue their own cases. Uh, Voltaire said, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. In fact, that's, that becomes then the, you know, the, the basis of our First Amendment is that we, <coughs> um, we disagree with each other, and our Constitution set it up so that we could disagree with each other and yet allow each other to speak our peace. So the older view of tolerance made three assumptions. There's objective truth. Secondly, the various parties in dispute think that they know what the truth of matter is. Okay, we always, you know, even though, uh, you know, even though we're in a disagreement, we still think we're right. I mean, you know, you know, let's get honest about it. Nevertheless, third, they hold that the best chance of uncovering the truth of the matter, or the best chance of persuading most people with reason and not with coercion, is an unhindered exchange of ideas no matter how wrong-headed some of those ideas seem that would be the other person We look at them and you say boy you're really wrong-headed about this you really don't understand but but the whole idea is both of us hold on to truth what we think is truth and we believe in absolute truth okay so we so we disagree sometimes what that you know what the outplaying of that truth is but both of us hold to the idea that there is an absolute truth and both of us need to get to that place uh, where where we come to an agreement. <clears throat> First amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech speech or the press. As I mentioned, that's part of our constitution or the right of people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. I mean, that is the foundation of our nation. And that's also under attack, I might add. But there's a newer view of tolerance, a redefinition of tolerance that we see happening in our culture today. And that is that there's no one view that is exclusively true. Strong opinions are nothing more than strong preferences for a particular version of reality, each version equally true. So the definition of the new tolerance is that every individual's beliefs, values, lifestyle, and perception of truth claims are equal. All right? Remember we just said that in the older view, there's we believe in absolute truth. This new view is that there is no absolute truth. Truth is relative. And so our disagreements then are just, you know, strong preferences on our part. We must be tolerant, not because we cannot distinguish the right path from the wrong path, but because all paths are equally right. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Your right is your right, and my right is my right, and your wrong is, and and so on. Okay, so it's a total redefinition of what what, uh, it means to be tolerant. Thomas A. Hemblock, he's a vice president of the National Lambda Chi Alpha fraternities, writes this. The definition of the new tolerance is that every individual's beliefs, values, lifestyle, and perception of truth are equal. There is no hierarchy of truth. All right? And so our culture, that's that's the kind of um, philosophy that many in our culture are operating on. There is no hierarchy of truth. We as Christians, we believe that there is a hierarchy of truth. There, there is ultimate, you know, truth that is God's truth. And then all of us have, you know, different pieces and so on of that. And, and so we can get together and we can, we can arrive at that ultimate truth. <clears throat> so there is, you know, some people's truth is actually more right than others. That's what we believe as Christians. And that is why we get in trouble. That is why there's a, a many times a lot of opposition against us as Christians is that we we believe in exclusivism. We say there is exclusive truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and 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 we'll go to the death for that. And those in the culture say, "That's your view, but my view. I believe Buddha is is, is uh, you know is is the Lord," and so. Uh, And so this new definition of tolerance would be, hey, come on, let's just get along together. Um, I believe one way, you believe another way. That's okay. We as Christians say, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. We're not not going there. (laughs) We believe in absolute exclusive truth. So the only sin is the sin of intolerance. Anyone who believes that they have a hold on truth, since everyone's truth is equally valuable and valid. So tolerance is the new single virtue which trumps all other virtues. So the highest virtue, then, is that of tolerance. Because nobody is right or wrong. So you know, the highest virtue, then, is to be tolerant of each other. The worst thing is to call somebody intolerant. And the problem is, as I've said, is that we believe in absolute truth. Now, the irony of this is this, that we as Christians are actually the tolerant ones, yet holding on to absolute truth. Why is that? Because only Christians can be truly objective. We as Christians are being increasingly accused of intolerance because we hold to absolute values of right and wrong. We're seen as bigoted and intolerant because we insist that there is absolute truth and that other religions and other philosophies, now listen to this, are wrong. Not just somebody's idea, but that they're actually wrong. We insist on absolute truth where label is intolerant, old-fashioned, and bigoted. The sad truth is that it is Christians who are truly inclusive. That's the, the key word today is inclusive. We're the ones who actually are inclusive because God puts love into our hearts. And if we truly love each other, we're going to be tolerant of them, even though they're, you know, they differ from us. That's the whole definition of evangelism, is that we love other people who we don't agree with. In fact, we violently disagree with them. I don't mean violently, but I mean strongly. We strongly disagree with them. We think that they're wrong. And really, that's the whole basis of evangelism, is that we believe that the world is wrong. They're going the wrong way. They have the wrong philosophy. They live a wrong lifestyle, and we believe that we live according to God's philosophy, God's lifestyle. So ours, we believe, is actually better than theirs, because it's closer to what God wants. Only Christ's love can overcome significant differences in belief. Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Now listen to this phrase as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God doesn't say, you know, I think this way, but if you don't don't agree with me, that's just fine. We can get along. We'll be tolerant with each other. That isn't what God says. God says, my ways are higher. My thoughts are higher. And so we believe in a hierarchy of truth. Truth is established by God. He's the embodiment of truth. Not only is Jesus the truth, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. We do, we do believe in exclusivism, absolute truth, and that's the worst thing in our culture. And I'll tell you, I, I believe that this is, this is the rock that we're going uh, you know, to have to stand on as Christians in the future. But we're going to get increasingly attacked on us. You are intolerant. You're bigoted. You're bigoted. You're exclusive. And we say, yes, you bet we are. Because we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. And we believe that there's absolute truth. And we're going to stand for it. And no matter what you do, we're going to believe in Jesus Christ. There's two issues that we as Christians, in my opinion, have to take a moral stance on in our culture. And those are abortion and same-sex marriage. Okay, and I believe that, um, and, and maybe religious freedom we might throw in there, but I'm not going to talk about that this morning. Um, both are not biblical. Let's look, at uh, let's look at same-sex marriage. In Boston, Illinois, in the British of Columbia, the state governments decided that all adoption agencies must be willing to place children with same-sex couples. The result is that some Catholic charities had to close down completely rather than allow adoption with same-sex cu- couples. This is, a, again, this is, this is what we're going to see happening all over the country um, as adoption agencies are being forced to violate their conscience and many times their charters in order to put uh, children with same-sex couples. In 2014, the American Counseling Association adopted new ethics rules requiring counselors to advise couples on their same-sex relationships, even when doing so would violate the consular's religious beliefs. So we're seeing this happening time after time after time. And the, the, the problem is that I believe that biblically you cannot defend same-sex marriage. Um, it's indefensible biblically. Now, there might be a lot of great philosophies and ideas out there, but again, we believe in a hierarchy of of absolute truth, and we believe that the Bible says, uh-uh, "You're not going there." So we see it, for example, in uh, Amy Barrett's, Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation process, and there has been a lot of a lot of heat about her Catholic religion, and the the um, And the heat has been that a Catholic or somebody who holds religious views cannot be objective. All right, I'm not making this up. This is actually what uh, you can find it in in print. Um, The uh, implicit assumption then is that if you are a secularist, if you don't believe in God, then you can be objective. If you believe in God, you have moved from objectivity to subjectivity. If you have exclusive beliefs, you're just not objective. That Christianity doesn't adhere to reason. Well, the opposite is true. It is actually those who have religious beliefs who are objective. Because God said that those who, who, are, you know, who don't believe in God, that he gives them over to a reprobate mind. So how can you say that they are more objective than Christians? How can you say that they are more reasonable and Christians are unreasonable? And that's just implying that, there's, that Christianity is not reasonable. And that simply is not true. Christianity is highly reasonable in fact, it is the only, and this is the reason I came to Christ. I came to Christ because I looked at a whole bunch of other philosophies and so on, and I came to the conclusion that it is only Christianity which is absolutely true and which doesn't, you know, you, you, the further and deeper you go in Christianity, the more that you discover that it all holds together. Only in the light can we see clearly. Our Constitution was founded by Christians and deists, and they believed that only a Christian culture would be able to live with a Republican, not the political party, form of government. They held a Judeo-Christian worldview, believed in the sinfulness of men, and that those with a Judeo-Christian worldview are best able to objectively interpret the Constitution. George Washington said this, or a biographer of George Washington said this about him. Um, So this is quoting George Washington. The founders of the land assumed that men of character would share Washington's commitment to statesmanship, allowing them to rise above self-interest and to act in the public interest with wisdom and even with courage. So the whole idea is that our constitution and our form of government was founded on the view that you, we, we needed to have a relationship with God in order for this, this country to hang together. And if we depart from that, then men will, they, they don't, they, in other words, put it this way, we don't move from this philosophy parallel with another philosophy. We actually go downhill. When we, when we separate from God, when we remove ourselves from God's counsel, we actually go downhill. And so those who have gone downhill cannot either in, be objective about life or they can't rule a nation at well because they're, they're going to be um, uh, caught up into all kinds of, of squabbling and so on and so forth. The checks and balances built in there, the system that we have, would serve to block the excesses of those whose public virtue did not match the demands of our office. So um, we believe as in a democracy in which it is important that people have Christian character, is what we're saying. The stronger we believe in Christ, the more we're changed into genuinely loving, tolerant people. So let's not be afraid to take our Christianity into the public arena. As believers, we are not on the defense. We're on the offense. Matthew 16, 18, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, that implies that we're on the offensive. Gates are not offensive weapons. They're defensive. The church is on the offensive. Okay, so... Let's go back to, then, our concept of the old view of tolerance. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So how do we go about being tolerant of other people in in this old sense? Well, first is that we allow Jesus to make us into his image. All right? You and I are not. We can't. The whole message of the gospel is that we cannot do this ourselves. We are incapable of living a Christian life without the presence of God's Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And I, I don't know about your life, but my life, it's, a, it's just a series of me trying to do it on my own, and then I come to the place and I go, okay, I guess I can't do it on my own Lord, I, I need your help in this. I, I can't do it without you. You've called me to do this. Now give me the power and the strength to be able to do it. In 1 Thessalonians 4, um, in the message version, I love this, this particular uh, phrase in the message version. One final word, friends, we ask you, urge is more like it. That you keep on doing what we told you to do to please God. Now listen to this. Not in a dogged religious plod, but in a living spirited dance. Isn't that beautiful? That God did not call us as believers to just kind of plod through life, somehow getting by, making it somehow by the skin of our teeth, but God has called us to a living spirited dance. Let that sink in for a while. We're called to a living, spirited dance. Luke Goodwin, um, and he's the one that I took a lot of these quotes from, and he, he wrote a book called Free to Believe. And in that book, um, he talks about, he's, um, the, he, he's a lawyer with the Beckett Foundation, and he has done a lot of the, the very uh, significant cases... Huh? Hobby Lobby and some of those. He has defended those before the Supreme Court. And so he puts together this whole book about how we as Christians ought to live in this litigious age. He says, ultimately, though, our calling, and this is the conclusion of the whole book, our calling is not to respond to the religious freedom challenges ahead. Our calling is to respond to Jesus. Sometimes that means we'll win religious freedom cases, Transform the culture and make society more just. Other times it means we'll lose religious freedom cases, oppose the culture, and suffer injustice. We have to be prepared. We have to be prepared for both. The only way to be prepared is to be transformed by Jesus Christ. We're in process. We're all in process. We've got our faults, our personality quirks, and so on. We tolerate those things with each other, but ultimately all of us are in the process of becoming more loving, more tolerant, more accepting of other people. Second thing we do is overlook the faults of each other. First Peter four eight. above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. We talked about that a little bit earlier. That we, that you, you know, and I find this particularly in marriage, that we have to overlook a lot of stuff, don't we? I mean, you wouldn't be, you know, anybody that's 36 years, um, you can't get along 36 years without overlooking things in each other, being tolerant of each other in that old sense. As all of us are in the old sense here. (laughs) Um, Ephesians 5, 25 and following. This is the... Um, this is the words in the message version of, of Ephesians 5 where it talks about husbands and wives. It says, Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words, now listen to this, his words evoke her beauty. We are called as husbands to evoke beauty in our wives. Everything he does and says is designed to bring out the best in her. Are we bringing out the best in our spouse? Dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. Does that describe your relationship with your wife? Well, God's working on me too. (laughs) We're all in process, aren't we? Third thing is that we experience the grace of God. We talked about earlier, God is a forgiving, tolerant God. He overlooks our sins, and we, the more that we experience, not just, you know, intellectually, but experience in our lives the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God, the more that we can extend that to each other. And I I have found in my life that the more that I really, really deep down inside, understand who Christ is and understand how much I am a sinner and how much God has had to forgive and how God accepts me and loves me anyway and seeks the best in me, I can pass that on to my wife so that she becomes what God has called her to be. And we can establish homes and churches and workplaces where others can grow and thrive because they are loved, cherished, and released to be whom God called them to be. We as Christians are the ones who don't hold rigid, legalistic, inhumane standards which exclude people rather than welcoming them and loving them in spite of their many flaws. Because that's exactly what Christ has done with us, isn't it? I mean, how much he's had to overlook in our lives. And the last thing is that we look to the interests of others and build each other up. Romans 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So our goal in life then is to please our neighbor for his good in order to build him up, make him stronger. We are in the business, especially as a church, we are in the business of building each other and making each other into the image of Christ. Verse 7, accept one another. Then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Philippians 2.4, each of you should look not, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now the minimum is just putting up bearing with each other, being tolerant. But we're to move beyond that, move beyond just tolerance, to actually loving and building each other up. And We can't build up those whom we can't tolerate but tolerating the failings in others is only the first step towards seeking to build them up. First Thessalonians five eleven says, "Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing." And we see this in the story of Peter uh, in Matthew chapter twenty six, and if you remember, um, Jesus is this is the last night when Jesus is with his disciples. And Peter had just told Jesus um, that he was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then, um, and then Jesus tells him, the disciples, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied. <laughs> so you know, he tells them this wonderful thing. Peter says, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Not me, Lord. Maybe these other guys, you know, these other 11, you can't trust them. But me, you can trust me. <clears throat> I tell you the truth, Jesus answered this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And we know the end of this story. Jesus, <laughs> as, as, <clears throat> or Peter, as Jesus is going through his trial, Peter denies Jesus three times. And then it says here, but Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the disciples, other disciples said the same thing. Now, here's here's the point of this, that Jesus knows all of us from the inside out. He still loves us. He still bears with us. He believes in us. He sees the best in us, and he desires the best for us. That's what love means. He knows what we have been, but he also sees what we can become. He extends mercy and grace to us in spite of our failings. So the point of this whole sermon is let's extend to others that same acceptance and dignity. Let's see the best in them, whether it's our spouses or, or the, you know, people in the church or your neighbors or whoever it is. And may the Lord give us the grace to see the best and the potential in each other. Amen.
0: pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being tolerant with us. Lord, and we look every day to you to find the the right way to be tolerant with others. Lord, and may we always look to your truth, to the the way that you are tolerant with us, for us to be tolerant with others. And Lord, may we reach out to others and help them learn how you would be, how tolerant you are, and how much you have shown your love to all of us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.